0: came out with
1: sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves, astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, are you confused? Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves. She sees radio waves. She sees radio waves.
0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien, and today is Thursday the 21st of November, 2019. And we're going to start each episode with a community service announcement and a reminder that, yes, Virginia, we have a climate crisis on our hands. See what you can do to help to convince your local politicians that we need wide-ranging policy changes. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And today, we have a fabulous feature interview for you with amateur radio astronomer Steve Oney, who has constructed a radio telescope in his backyard, designed and set up a receiver system, and was the only person on the planet to capture the 2019 Vela glitch in radio frequencies in real time. And then we'll welcome Dr Ian Astroblog Musgrave, for our regular observational and astrophotography session, What's Up Doc? And we'll finish up as usual with our Astrophys News Highlights from this golden age of astronomy, space science and particle physics. So let's zoom up right now to the Hawkesbury River region in New South Wales up near Sydney. And we'll speak with Steve. And along the way we might even be encouraging a few people to take up amateur radio astronomy. But a word of warning, it's not rocket science, but it sounds like it is extremely difficult. (whistles) Hello Steve. G'day Brendan. Following a fabulous interview on the Villa Pulsar glitch with Dr Jim Palfreyman a couple of weeks ago, he's put me in touch with Steve Oney, who is an amateur radio astronomer who was the only observer in the world who detected the 2019 Vela glitch in radio frequencies as it actually happened. Fantastic. Thanks for speaking with us, Steve.
2: It's a pleasure, Brendan.
0: Okay, so before we talk about your homemade radio observatory your Vila research and the rapidly growing role of amateurs in radio astronomy. Can you tell us where you grew up, please, Steve?
2: Yeah, sure. Actually, it was a number of places. My dad's job required him to move around approximately once every three years for promotion purposes. So I grew up in about seven places, all of them in New South Wales. So I spent many happy hours wandering around the countryside on my push bike.
0: Ah, and what about dark skies where you were, Steve?
2: Well, that's right. As you can imagine, out in the countryside, there was very little pollution and you could look up at the sky at night time and see a very clear view of the stars.
0: Excellent. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your school days and your early ambitions.
2: And did those ambitions change? Yes, my education was all in the public system, and I attended seven different schools. I'd have to say I didn't do all that well at school, and my reports were peppered with that classic can-do-better, and basically only interested in science and physics all the way through. I found that I was only really interested in things that I could put to practical use, so... Anything which was just you had to learn just for the sake of learning I had great difficulty with, but anything where I could see ah I could use that for this or that, then it was no problem. In fact I, I remember being cane for daydreaming on more than one occasion. <laughs> I guess you could say I was a typical disinterested student. Probably only the science teachers appreciated my presence in their classes because I participated
0: that sounds great, Steve. Now, what did you do after school?
2: I finished HSC. In 1968, I was employed by AWA, and that's probably not a name that's familiar to most people these days, but it was a very big commercial electronics firm. And I joined as a trainee electrical engineer, doing a diploma in electronic engineering and then converting that to a degree in electrical engineering. Once again, I didn't really excel academically. I was too busy at home building things. But the final year project was something that you had to design and build. And despite academically sort of being down in the bottom, I tied first place for that, that practical project. Being trained by AWA was gold. If you went to a job interview, that was a big tick because they knew that if you were trained by AWA, they put you right through the system. So they'd put you in the drawing office, they put you in the test room. I worked on lathes, I worked in the plating shop. And so they knew that I had a wide range of experience. I spent two years on the production line soldering. After about 10 years at AWA, I took a punt and moved to a small company which made ultrasound scanners. And that was a very interesting company to work for. This involved with Doppler blood flow instruments and then later hypothermia, which is treatment of tumours by localised heating but using high-power ultrasound. I found that was very, very interesting, those projects. Yep. Later on, I went into technical teaching diploma in teaching and I did a few stints in in TAFE teaching electronics. Then I came back and I was head of a department consisting of about 20 design engineers, electronic, electrical, mechanical engineers. But after two years, the call of the workbench and the soldering iron grew too great. So I went back and got a job which was back in design. All in all, an interesting range of projects that I've been involved with.
0: And it sounds like your early teachers wouldn't have been surprised to hear that you ended up building your own radio telescope in the backyard. Now, did I see somewhere else you were involved in ham radio?
2: Yes, yes. I started out in radio, being interested in radio, when I was about 10 years old. I had a crystal set and uh, 100 metres of wire and uh, strung up through the gum trees and I'd lie in bed at night and listen to the local AM station. So that was my first taste of the magic of radio. You know, radio is still magic magic to me. I got my ham radio licence in 1967 and I still have several call signs. You know, my gear was built from surplus equipment. So I would buy... Navy or ex-army receivers and transceivers and modify them so they would work in the amateur band. Later on, I experimented with low-frequency transmission and I had several scientific signed licences. And during my experiments, I invented a transmission code called IFK, which is incremental frequency keying, and that mode's been incorporated by others into amateur radio software packages. So that was a lot of fun.
0: Fantastic. Now, we're going to talk about your design and build of your radio observatory in your backyard. But before we do, could you just tell us about how your interest in ham radio or how you ended up developing your initial interest in ham radio into radio astronomy. We won't call it an obsession yet, but how did that transition happen?
2: (laughs) It's okay, it is an obsession, but in my defense, you know, what could be more intriguing than receiving signals from an object 900 light years away? I also had an interest in astronomy, as you, you mentioned about the clear skies in the country. I spent a lot of time looking at the the night skies in a way that would not be available these days because we would be driving home from some outing in the country, maybe down on the beach, and I would get up on the parcel shelf behind the back seat and lie across there. This is obviously before the days of seatbelts and such (laughs) I'd lie on the parcel shelf and just stare up at the sky and and look at the stars, you know, as you're passing through the trees. And when you spend that, you might spend half an hour just also looking up at that. And it just gave me an overwhelming sense of wonder at the cosmos. So even, I suppose, when I was eight years of age, I had that seed of interest in, in astronomy but uh, later on, when I thought I might indulge that, I found I was a magnet for mosquitoes. So, sitting outside at an optical telescope was not pleasant. So, that sort of motivated me to turn to radio astronomy um, because you have a combination of radio and astronomy and also programming. But you could indulge in any hour of the day, it's 24 7, doesn't need to be nighttime. And most importantly, it's mosquito-free because you're inside.
0: That's great <laughs> yeah. motivation, Steve.
2: And the first foray into radio astronomy was in was about 1991, where I built a, a simple interferometer, which was pointed at the sun. I used two UHF TV antennas operating at 600 megahertz into an narrowband receiver. Around that time, I didn't do much because I had children growing up, but when they'd grown up later on, I had the opportunity to return to that interest.
0: Fantastic. I love the way you describe it as simple interferometry, but I think there's a bit of modesty there. So let's move on now to your current research. You've created the Hawkesbury Radio Astronomy Observatory in your backyard, where you've built a Yagi Complex antenna array, I've seen the picture, and you've coupled it with the receiver and you're generating data that has enabled you to be the only person on the planet to observe Vela's 2019 glitch, which came a bit early and surprised people, in radio waves as it happened. Let's talk about your antenna and, you know, the when, the why and the how you decided to build a Yagi and how you constructed it. Can you talk us through your antenna build and describe it for us and tell us what problems you encountered and how you've refined it?
2: Okay, Uh, it was a result of a lot of research to arrive at. The current system that I had, I had to come up to speed on the whole skill set, certainly a steep learning curve. And if you're an amateur and you're doing it all alone, you've got to build everything. If you're a professional, you know, the telescope's built for you, a lot of software's written. If you're a sole amateur, then you have to do everything yourself. So that took a heck of a long time. But I simplified it by assembling a system that was specifically for detecting the velar pulsar. It's a handy pulsar for me. It goes directly overhead. It's the strongest pulsar. And so it was an ideal candidate. We live on a three-quarter acre block. Sounds like plenty of room for putting up radio astronomy antennas, but The block is almost entirely covered in gum trees and and so there are only a couple of clear windows to the sky and uh, the best location with the biggest window just happens to be right in the line of sight of our best view, so second best location had to be chosen. (laughs) And even in that position, the angle of clear view to the sky is less than about 30 degrees Um, which actually simplified things because there was no point constructing some complicated tracking system because you could only go, you know, plus or minus 15 degrees and you'd run into trees, which would ruin the observation. Yep. We only had a few metres space between the border and the side of the house. So the usual dish antenna is not practical because it builds up its collecting area by getting bigger. And um, so that's why I chose the Yagi antenna design because those types of antennas build up their collecting area or aperture by increasing in length rather than width. So as Vela passes almost directly overhead, you can imagine I could put these very long antennas but they could be pointing straight up. So they fitted in those few metres of space beside the house. So that was one reason I went to Yagi's. Cool. The observation frequency, going higher in frequency, of course, is better for RFI, radio frequency interference. Um, It's less at higher frequencies. But the problem is the pulses are weaker at higher frequencies. Vela is actually five times stronger at 400 megahertz than it is at 1,400 megahertz. So it makes a mighty big antenna, to make up for that factor of five. So I chose 430 megahertz, where Vila is strong, and I also chose 430 specifically in the 400 megahertz band because you could get amateur antennas commercially for that frequency. So the array ended up being four circularly polarised Yagis in a fixed pointing, virtually straight up, and those yagis are about six metres long. So I have this wonderful, to me, beautiful garden art <laughs> sticking up in the backyard. They have to be circularly polarised because Vila is very close to being 100% linearly polarised. And as the beam sweeps across you, your line of sight, it swings in the angle of the polarisation. So if you put a linear antenna up it might be spot on for part of the swing but be cross-polarised for the rest. So if you've got a circularly polarised antenna it just evenly responds all the way through the pulse.
0: Wow, that's awesome, Steve. You've not only found the sweet spot, you've found the sweet antenna to fit in the sweet spot.
2: That's right, yes.
0: Okay. Now, what about the receiver that you've connected to your Yagi array using SDR? And can you tell us about the format of the data that you collect and how it's visualized and analyzed and how you know you've captured Vela each day? And that first capture, Steve, must have been very exciting because as your friend Jim Pofferman told us two episodes ago, Pulsars are the holy grail for amateur radio astronomers, and you did it. Tell us about that fantastic moment and the lead-up to it with your data.
2: Well, first, the receiver. It turns out that the receiver I use is one of the most surprising aspects to professionals, and I tell them what my system is because it's the least expensive part of the system. It's one of those digital TV USB dongles, you know, the ones you can buy for 20 bucks on eBay, yep. which is kind of a bit different from the megabuck front ends that the professionals use. So they're a bit surprised at that, and it's only got a narrow operating bandwidth or receiving bandwidth of 2.4 megahertz. So that, once again, is down the bottom end of performance. And there are others which can do better than that, but this is about the cheapest SDR that you can do. And this is made possible by some very clever chaps who have written special software drivers which repurposes these digital TV dongles to be able to capture raw data. And so that turns these cheap dongles into SDRs, software-defined receivers. Now, of course, the receiver has to be preceded by filters and low-noise amplifiers to you know, prevent overload and bring up the signal level. Basically, that's the core of the receiving side of it, and that's built into basic automatic daily observation. I have a robotics scheduler that carries out their daily observation, just switches on and records data for an hour a day at the appropriate time when is passing overhead, and that one hour's worth of data is in complex binary format called IQ or quadrature, and that's then converted to a standard format that is familiar to professional astronomers, which is called a filter bank format, and that basically breaks the signal down into frequency channels. So it splits up the 2.4 megahertz into smaller channels. I split it into 32 channels and that's needed for a process called de-dispersion. Dispersion Dispersion is caused by the signal travelling through the interstellar medium, the ISM, and what it does to the signal is that even though the signal started out at the pulsar at the same time, as it travels through the lower frequency part of that broadband signal gets delayed. So by the time it arrives here at my antenna at 430 megahertz, the top end of the highest frequency part of the signal arrives about 16 milliseconds before the low end. So if you want to get the best sensitivity, you've got to make sure that those two signals arrive at the same time so you can stack them on top of each other and add them to get the best signal. And that's what de-dispersion is. You take those frequency channels and you artificially remove the delay between those frequency channels so they all line up in time. And then so you have one time series data record and then you fold that at the period of the pulsar to stack up the pulses. Because of the very small antenna and the narrow bandwidth I've got, my system is not sensitive enough to see single pulses. I have to take an hour's worth of pulses and stack them on top of each other so the pulses stack up and the noise decreases and that allows me to bring the pulse out of the noise. To do that, I could just fold once at one predicted period But the point of my system is I'm trying to measure period and I'm trying to detect a change in period. So it's no good just folding at the predicted period because one day a glitch comes along and you'll fold at the wrong period. What I do is I test fold the data over a period range of plus or minus five parts per million around the predicted period. And I find the period which gives the best signal and that becomes my daily period measurement. As I'm comparing and and looking at my day-to-day measurements, if I see a, a big jump in my measurement, that's an indication that Vela has glitched. And I think Jim's covered it pretty extensively in previous podcasts, but a glitch is a sudden drop in the rotation period, which for Vela happens every three years or so. So at the end of the processing chain, I have a clear pulse profile, which is the proof of the pudding. And yes, after many failed attempts, seeing my first real detection had me dancing around the house. I was very, very happy. And that first detection happened in May 2017. And so now I've done nearly two and a half years of these daily observations.
0: Amazing. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Now, let's move on now then to the 2nd of February earlier this year in 2019. Am I correct that you at the Hawkesbury RAO captured the glitch as it happened?
2: Yes. Well, technically, yes. But as I mentioned, I cannot see the individual pulses. You know, I'd need a 20 metre dish or so for that. So maybe... a. A short summary of what happened at the time might be helpful. Yes, please. So on the day, Vela entered the antenna beam about 12.15am Saturday morning local time and exited at one fifteen am so about an hour later. So the glitch occurred about one ten am So that was the last five minutes of that observation. So as my period measurement averages over the hour, I didn't see it initially in my results because the last five minutes observation would be swamped by the first 55 minutes observation. But the next day when it had glitched, it was at the new period for the whole observation, it showed a clear drop in the measured period. So a glitch had occurred. Now, parks. John Sarkisian at Parks initially constrained the the latest time because of when he did his observation, but he had a two-weeks break before that observation. So the earliest time Parks could give was approximately 14 days prior. Because I do daily observations, it meant I could initially constrain the earliest time of the glitch to within 24 hours. And because of the way that I do my measurements, I don't do time of arrivals or OAs as professionals do. They actually make an on-spot period measurement. I was able to estimate straight away that it was, well, I said 2.3 plus or minus 0.1 parts per million, and it turned out to be 2.49 parts per million actual. So I was in the ballpark with that as well. These constraints and when it actually occurred was later confirmed by the Fermi LAT gamma-ray data, which was pointing at Vela at the time of the glitch also. So only my radio data and the Fermilat gamma-ray data contain the, the Vela glitch.
0: That's so awesome. Okay, well, let's go into a bit of propeller head detail now. and Could you tell us about the software you use and how you use it to look at Villa. You've already talked about the folding. Do you want to mention any other targets that you have and the challenges that you have to face with
2: software and analysis? Yeah, sure. Well, software is a major factor. Um, everything is done digitally after the initial analogue to digital conversion in the, the little dongle I was talking about. Because I had a lack of experience with Linux, I didn't initially use professional applications which are available. So I wrote custom code for my processing in C Sharp in Windows. Um, of course, and that goes against what normally you would do in radio astronomy. Of course, you'd use Linux and uh, operating system. You wouldn't do it in Windows. Well, I did the opposite to what <laughs> what most people would do. So I had to write all that code myself, uh, except for the dongle driver, I was mentioning before. And of course, the fast Fourier transform source code, which is the thing that allows me to break the uh, data into those filter bank format into different channels. That was written by others. And uh, I think, yeah, there was one AstroPy script that was written by another person as well, but all the rest I wrote myself. So I end up with a Windows GUI, which automates the data capture, the processing, the analysis, and also it, it uploads to a website so people can see. Because that was one of the important things for me to do. It's one thing to take some data, and then discover something in it and then say, oh, look, I found this in my data three days ago. Whereas if I put it up on the website, it was there. People, in most cases, people could see it before I would see it because if they were sitting there watching it, it would come up. And if I was away somewhere, they would see it before I would. And on a number of occasions, um, people would email and say, oh, there was something interesting in your uh, results today, Steve. And i oh, okay. I'll go and have a look. So it's a sort of a set-and-forget operation. It's been running for over two years. Initially, it was just my own software, but later on I did some integration with that professional software by rather clunky means. Um, The main code would run on Windows, uploads results to the cloud, along with a semaphore file. A Linux machine would be monitoring and looking for that semaphore file in the cloud. And then it would download some data from the cloud and run a professional program. The one I used was a prep folder. It's out of the Presto suite of applications and then produce a result, which were then uploaded to the website. I had two computers doing it. One, Windows, communicating through the cloud to a Linux machine and processing data. So... That's something that I wanted to fix, so I'm now rewriting all my C-sharp Windows code to run exclusive on a Linux machine, and I've had to learn Linux, Python, and graphics plotting packages, and so on. I'm also involved in a major project to add accurate timestamping to the data so I can generate TOAs, which are time of arrivals of each individual pulse.
0: That sounds very cool. Now, on one level, it sounds like you've done a lot of this yourself, but we know that it takes a village to raise a radio astronomer. Tell us about your experiences with mentoring by the professional radio astronomy
2: community. Yeah, sure, Brendan. It's an important topic to talk about. It's something which affects amateurs quite a lot. If you are a optical amateur astronomer, you would have a choice. Well, in Sydney here, I can imagine I could, within reasonable driving distance, maybe three or four astronomy clubs that you go to and get all sorts of information and help and guidance about using an optical telescope. If you rock up to those clubs and say, oh, I'm interested in radio astronomy, then you're out of luck. I think there's probably two that I know of, there's probably three, but I'd say two clubs which are heavily into radio astronomy in Australia, and as far as I know, are not in Sydney, which is where I live. Yeah. So you're on your lonesome, more or less. Now, I've been fortunate enough to had contact with a number of professional individuals over the years, and they've given advice and information. The list is long. I might mention Joe Taylor, Sarah Buchner, Matthew Bales, George Hobbs, John mm. Sarkissian, and, of course, Dr. Jim Palfreyman, which obviously is a name familiar to all of us. Now, amateurs struggle to be taken seriously. Now, this is understandable. Pros, get a lot of spam and you know flat earthers and so on so you've got to break that, uh, that barrier I think the professionals probably thought initially that what I was trying to do wasn't really possible but they still answered questions which is a credit to them The other responsibility an amateur has is to, you need to show that you've done your homework and you're not wasting their time. If you can show you've done your homework, then they will respond. Now, Jim was especially tolerant and patient, (laughs) as he's already told you. And I owe a great deal to Jim because without Jim, would possibly there be no mention in that ATEL 12466. Which announced the, the glitch. There would be no meeting with Dame Jocelyn Bell Burnell, and also possibly the opportunities which followed at those particular events. Now, Jim gave me a complete tour of the 26th meter down in Hobart and also the Great Reba Museum. And I had the pleasure of listening to Vela in real time audio, and Jim discussed. His past work and future ideas, and that was a real privilege. I also had several visits to ATNF, to C S I R O, Marsfield, where I met George Hobbs and John Sarkissian, Dick Manchester, amongst others. Yep. Tim Bateman contacted me because of my glitch result and he gave myself and my wife Pam an extensive tour of most that upgrade down at most down near Canberra. I was really in my element being shown by Tim over all the gear down there. It was really a terrific day. So all in all, I'm grateful for the guidance and support that professionals have given me. I've found them very friendly, very helpful people.
0: Very good. Okay, now I believe you've formed a small group of amateurs around the world who are interested in pulsar detection. Tell us about this, Steve.
2: Uh, gladly. There's only probably a, a handful of amateur people doing pulsar detections around the world. And amateur pulsar detection is a difficult challenge. So many things that have to go right, and if one of them goes wrong, then you don't succeed. So when you're trying to sort that out, it's good to have others who are at the same level trying to do the same thing. So I thought there was a need to create a dedicated group to pool information and improve communication to facilitate that. So it's mainly people that are moving from the curiosity stage to do scientific-grade projects. The only requirement to be in the group is an interest, but importantly, a commitment to scientific methods which is important for pulsars because pulsars are a pulse. So there are many things that happen on Earth which mimic a pulsar. For example, I live across the road from a 600-acre farm which has five kilometres of electric fencing. <laughs> so it's, uh, I, you know, when we had the old analogue phones, you pick up the phone, you could hear tick, tick from the electric fence. On certain days, I could hear up to three of them just ticking away, and of course, that's exactly what a pulsar looks like. And so you have to be careful that you're not fooled by those sorts of things. And that's just one of the many things that mimic pulsars here on Earth. So commitment to scientific methods is important. You can't just take one reading, look at a result which only has a significance of, say, four sigma or something and say, oh, look, I've detected a pulsar. You've got to be able to repeat it. You've got to be able to show by other means. You've got to be able to show, look, it's got dispersion. So it's obviously come from outer space. It hasn't come from next door's lawnmower. Yep. So that's the commitment to scientific method. So that was a requirement. So there are about 25 members now and about... Maybe half a dozen, about like twenty-five, are actually doing pulsar detection, and so I built a website about pulsar detection and the problems that you would have, and also a list of those amateurs which have successfully detected pulsars and have verified that detection. Okay, what's the name of that website? The name of the website is Neutron Star, which is just one word dot joataman dot net is j o a t a m a n dot net
0: excellent thank you Steve now the microphone's all yours Steve and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in the sciences or science denialism or career paths or our quest for new knowledge or even science itself. The mic's all
2: yours. Oh, dangerous license. (laughs) (laughs) I can hear my family saying, oh no. (laughs) Okay. Basically, I consider myself as an amateur science, so I tend to look at the world that way. Sometimes it's not always socially acceptable and it, it might offend people, but that's what I tend to do. My pet peeve, I guess, is ideology. Now, ideology is okay. There are a lot of good things in ideology because it orders things and tidies things up, but I think it can have serious consequences when it's isolated from the real world. Now ironically, most ideologues believe they are in the real world, but sometimes they're not now problems arise when people persist in their ideology, which is contrary to evidence, particularly I'm talking about cherry picking data to support a particular view, yes. or engaging in conspiracy theories and so on. Yes. I recently heard a article this is say that scientists are anti-politicians. What he meant by that was scientists seeking data to break theories, not seeking data to support their ideology. I I think politicians, leaders, but more importantly, those who vote for them in a democracy, need to cast aside ideologies and, and really look at the Evans with an open mind. In my opinion, it's never been a more important time to be standing up for science, and it certainly has taken a battering from many sides lately.
0: I'm right with you on that one, Steve. Thank you very much. Now, is there anything else that we should watch out for in the near future?
2: What are you keeping your eye on? Well, I'm fascinated by fast radio bursts, FRBs, not sure whether in my location here you know, I could do anything, but nevertheless, I'm um, looking at that. Uh, it's really interesting, FRBs, because they're early days. Nobody's sure what they are, or well, even don't even have a good idea what they are. So to be watching the evolution of the theories, you know, as more data is collected and refinement of those series is going to be a really interesting uh, period of time. and I'm glad that I'd be able, on the sidelines, sit and watch that. It's also good time for the non professionals because most of the stuff that's coming in is observational. And so the information that's being produced in papers is not yet buried between pages and pages of high level math. So it's very accessible at the moment, as it was you know, in the early days of Polsars when they were just doing basic observation and and so it was very accessible. You know, I have a bit of a blue sky FRB emitter project, but we'll talk about that another day perhaps.
1: (laughs)
0: Indeed. Thank you very much, Steve. Well, thank you so much, Steve Oni. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you.
2: Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Brendan, and I thank you for the opportunity.
0: No, no. Thank you, Steve.
2: Farewell for now. See ya.
0: OK, let's cross over to Adelaide now and catch up with Ian Astroblog Musgrave in What's Up Doc. Hello, Ian.
1: Hello, Brendan.
0: Great to be speaking with you again. Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for the next two weeks?
1: What's up with the sky for the next two weeks? Those of you who have been watching the Western Evening Horizon over the past few nights have been watching Venus brighten and become closer and closer to Jupiter as Jupiter sinks towards the horizon. The culmination of this will occur on the 24th when Venus and Jupiter are at their closest. Then Venus continues to rise into the sky and Jupiter sinks towards the horizon. Then on the 28th, the thin crescent moon will be just below Jupiter. In some parts of the Northern Hemisphere, you'll see an occultation of Jupiter. From the Southern Hemisphere, we just see them very close together, the very thin crescent moon Jupiter will look very nice indeed. And the following night, the crescent moon will be between Jupiter and Venus. So that's all looking very nice over the next two weeks. So... Keep your eyes peeled and watch the evening skies. Uh, the best view is around about an hour after sunset. Although you may wish to look earlier because if you've got a very good level of horizon, the sunset colors and uh, Venus coming out and Jupiter coming out of the sunset colors and then as the sky begins to purple and darken and the colors in the sky as twilight uh, skylight deepens and, and it just is absolutely brilliant. Jupiter is no longer a good telescopic target. It's too close to the horizon, and Saturn is still higher up uh, above the horizon for a reasonable time to get some imaging in. So the window, of course, is closing as Saturn gets closer and closer to the horizon. But again, Saturn is part of the lineup that is occurring in our glorious dance of planets on the 24th, when Jupiter and Venus will be close. Saturn is easily visible above them, and then Venus will begin to climb look Saturn, or they will almost in December. And then the moon joins Jupiter. Saturn above it will look very nice indeed. Now, Vesta is now well past its brightest opposition. It's still bright enough to be seen in binoculars, but it's moving away from the two guide stars that we've been looking for over the past few weeks. So, again, it will be a little bit harder to find, but certainly as we go to the air over the next few days in dark skies, Vesta should be very obvious as it moves away from the pair of the guide stars that form the off of Taurus the Bull.
0: Very good. Now, what about the morning skies, then?
1: The morning skies are looking really nice the constellation of Virgo is rising higher above the eastern horizon and the bright star speaker. On the 24th, Venus and Jupiter are doing their thing. The waning crescent moon forms a triangle with speaker and Mars. And if you've got a very level horizon, you might be able to see Mercury picking up not far from Mars. The following night, the thin crescent moon is very close to Mars, uh, with Mercury again looking on. So uh, we're now beginning to see some interesting morning action and uh, later on uh, when Jupiter do it, them at the end of the uh, year, uh, early next year, we'll be able to see some nice uh, reaction with um, Jupiter and Mercury over the next few months. Great. Right. And we may have a surprise on the 21st and the 22nd, just when this is going to air, there may be an outburst of the Myceteris meteor shower. It's the constellation of the unicorn. It has a little regular meteor shower, but normally the rates are very, very low. But it's been predicted this year there will be an outburst which may reach up to 400 meteors an hour. Cool. That's a lot of meteors. you would be able to easily see in two to three per minute, if not uh, closer to 10 maximum. This is clearing around about four fifty universal time, which in Australia on the eleven o'clock in the morning, which is not very good from our point of view. However, the peak is the, the, the actual time of the peak is a little bit uncertain, so it could occur earlier, it could occur later. It all depends on the geometry of the cloud that they expect to impact us. So the northern hemisphere has the best view, the uh, constellation of Monasteris. It gets very high above the horizon. In Australia, the constellation is not fantastically high above the horizon, but reasonably high above the horizon. It's conveniently located between much better-known constellations of Orion and Canis Major. So if you wake up after midnight, either the 21st or the 22nd, 21st in case it's arriving early, 22nd in case it's arriving the start looking up after midnight, you will have to be a little bit patient. This is also a good time because the moon is weighing quite a bit and so you shouldn't have too much moonlight appearance. It may occur, it may not occur, but if it really does occur, it's well worth having to look for. As always when you're looking for meteors, don't look exactly at the radius. sweep out to either side of the radius because the medials will start their burn a bit away from the radiance itself. If you're looking in the general area of Orion and major, that should give you a fairly good area of view to look for these medials.
0: Very good, Ian. Well, do you have a tangent for us for this episode?
1: I do indeed, and in one way it leads on from the medial showers, in that the Starlink satellite, the second launch of the Starlink satellite constellation by SpaceX has just occurred. And so now we have another 60 satellites tracing through the sky. As this episode will be released, it's entirely possible that they'll still be visible. To the despair of amateur astronomers everywhere, these things are a lot brighter than advertised. And the Starlink train is once again Scooting across the sky and causing everything from one to the consternation around the world of this trail of 60 satellites one after the other scoots across the sky. and I mean, they're, they're relatively bright. We've got a series that are occurring in Australia between the 18th to the 28th of November. So on the, evening of the evenings of the 21st and the 22nd, when it goes out, there's still a the good chance to uh, see the these are starlings. Some of them are going to be as bright as magnitude 2.3. Others will be as uh, bright as magnitude 4. So from suburban skies, you'll probably pick up the ones that magnitude 2.3 and, and 3.5. The dimmer ones, maybe a, a little bit less. Uh, from dark sky sites, uh, they'll be extremely obvious. Yep. And one of the problems is, of course, that when these things are boosted to their final orbits, there was uh what oh look there's not going to be a problem I'll be uh, perfectly I'll uh, be perfectly dim, and uh, they'll the shadow and you order to see them and it's turning out no that's not the case, even the uh, the ones that been get depth orbit are uh, between magnitudes four uh, and they interfere uh, with uh, astrophotography quite a bit, and people didn't realize that shadow is not all consuming. And so that uh, you can see the satellites for quite some time uh, before they enter into Earth's shadow. Uh, quite a few astronomers astronomer- are showing images of their uh, uh, photographs ruined by the uh, star links going over. Uh, and it also raises a number of questions. While initially we have only got now 120 of these things, As more and more atoms the constellations, more and more of the sky is going to be taken over by these things. And it also comes into the question of exactly how is their navigation? Where more there's just 60 of them, or now 120. The ability of them to avoid uh, collisions with other objects is reasonably okay, although the ESA did have to move one of their uh, satellites to avoid a collision uh, recently. Um, but what happens? It gets more and more crowded. How will collision uh, detection work in such a crowded, low Earth environment? And if one of these things crashes into another one, we're going to have lots more debris. And what happens when the full constellations are up and we have on the order of a thousand light uh, or more uh, in these in these low Earth orbits, our uh, crowded sky? It's not just going to ruin astronomy but also uh, professional astronomy and there will be a whole range of issues which I think have been very poorly thought about and they're still very bright. They obviously haven't significantly addressed the issue of the brightness of the satellites.
0: Indeed, Ian, and I'm going to deal with that a little bit in our news item following this segment. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrave. Another fantastic segment of What's Up Doc. Good night, Ian.
1: No worries. Thank you very much.
0: And here is the Astrophys News for Thursday, the 21st of November, 2019. First up, a follow-up on Ian's Starlink report that you've just heard. Summary. On November 11, SpaceX launched 60 Starlink satellites into low Earth orbit, bringing its total constellation size to 122, already one of the largest satellite networks in space. The company has approval to launch 12,000 of the small broadband satellites and SpaceX has just asked the International Telecommunication Union to arrange spectrum for 30,000 additional Starlink satellites. The American Astronomical Society has voiced concern about the sheer number of planned satellites leading to inevitable space collisions, filling valuable orbits with dangerous debris fields. SpaceX competitor OneWeb is also planning its own giant constellation of broadband satellites starting next year in 2020. My personal view is that this is a consumer rights issue. As consumers of night skies, the rights of astronomers to observe the night sky are being annihilated. So thanks for nothing, Elon Musk. I'm looking forward to seeing your responsible and effective method of establishing a Starlink Collision Debris Field cleanup Protocol. But I'm not holding my breath. Forbes has produced a very thoughtful piece on this issue, and intrepid orbital mathematician and asteroid hunter Daniel Bamberger has summarised it succinctly. I quote As of now, only 0.14% of SpaceX's Starlink satellites are in orbit, and the effects are already felt. Elon Musk says he wants to paint his satellites black to resolve the issue. But it is unlikely that this will actually help much, as the highly reflective solar panels cannot be painted. SpaceX also claims that they would maneuver its constellation to create gaps and accommodate sensitive astronomical observations. So... Astronomers will have to propose their observation plans to SpaceX in the future, hoping that SpaceX grants them dark skies? Daniel doubts it. Me either, Daniel. On a happier note, a big shout out to Rami Mandau, Amy Wardrop and Fiona Lee at SpaceAustralia.com. They have constructed a striking website to showcase all the latest developments in Australia's re-emerging space industry, plus the very latest in astronomical research developments. It's very cool. Go and bookmark spaceaustralia.com Our next episodes. Our very next and final 2019 episode is our are We Alone feature episode with Professor Gerard Lewis and then we take a well-earned summer holiday break over the festive season. I'll be escaping the bushfire zone and taking my family down to the beach for a while. In the new year, we will return and talk with Dr Belinda Nicholson over in the UK, for Farah. From Swinburne on his use of AI to capture FRB signals from most the Malonglo Synthesis Telescope in real time, and we have lined up alien communication specialist researcher Daniel Oberhaus, who is the author of his new book, Extraterrestrial Languages. Sounds fascinating, and we're also hoping to have Clint Jeffrey on the show to talk about first light for the Astronomical Society of Victoria's new 8-metre radio telescope up in a quiet zone in central Victoria. And then, in March 2020, we will have our milestone 100th episode and we're thrilled to confirm Dr Vanessa Moss will be our guest for this special episode. See you in two weeks.